we are in Isaiah. We finished chapter 20 last time, so we'll launch here on uh, 21. This section of Isaiah has to do with the Assyrian invasion and the northern kingdom being taken out by the Assyrian Empire. And all of these oracles against various peoples in the region are pretty much with respect to that invasion. Some things go to the birth of the Messiah and so forth, but most of them have to do with the people around Israel and Israel itself. The oracle about Babylon here is Babylon is going to be destroyed. And the commentary I read, there's three destructions of Babylon, probably more if you count the original Babylonian empire as opposed to Neo-Babylon. You have the one in Revelation. You have the one that happens when, after Nebuchadnezzar's death, the Babylonian empire is destroyed by the Medes and the Persians. And in both the destruction of the Medes and the Persians and the destruction in Revelation, the fall of Babylon is a cause for rejoicing. Here, it is not. As we'll see in a minute when we get there, down in 21.3, says, My loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me, like the pangs of a woman in labor. So the prophet Isaiah is not happy about this prophecy, which is the case when the Medes and the Persians destroy it, because that means that the captivity is coming to an end and Israel gets to return to the land. And of course, in the end times, when Revelation was destroyed, it's cause for rejoicing in heaven because Babylon, in that case, in addition to a city, represents the earthly system which is overthrown. This, as I say, is not a happy occasion. And the commentary that I read says that this is talking about the rebellion of Babylon against the Assyrian Empire by a guy by the name of Marduk Apal Edina, who is called Merodach Baladan in Isaiah 39. Same guy. This guy is a Chaldean, as opposed to an Assyrian, and he comes and conquers Babylon, puts himself as king of Babylon, grabs the Medes and the Elamites as allies, and they hold off the Assyrian Empire for about 10 years. Now, it takes a while before the Assyrians are able to displace them, and one of the things that happens is under Hezekiah, Hezekiah entertains the hope that the Babylonian rebellion against the Assyrian Empire is going to draw the Assyrians away from Israel, and so Israel is going to be relieved of the threat of the Assyrians. This is Babylon before Nebuchadnezzar. In matter of fact, probably about 120 years before Nebuchadnezzar. And so you have this Chaldean, Merodach Baladan, who comes out of the south, south of Babylon, installs himself in Babylon, is supported by the Elamites and the Medes. They rebel against the Assyrians, who are the ones who take out northern Israel. 
and also will besiege Jerusalem. So from Judah's perspective, there is real hope that Babylon is going to be able to take the Assyrian pressure off of them. So the oracle here that Isaiah is talking about in 21, which causes him grief, is that that Babylonian uprising is not going to succeed. Then that means that the Assyrians are not going to be drawn off to the east where they won't be paying any attention to Israel. That's not going to happen. And so this prophecy of the fall of Babylon in Isaiah 21 is for the Israelites a source of anguish as opposed to a source of joy, which would be the case when Babylon after Nebuchadnezzar is destroyed by the Medes and the Persians and Babylon is destroyed in Revelation. Both of those are sources of joy. If I said all that, so it makes sense. As I say, if you don't understand all that, then the prophecy doesn't make a lot of sense. So now, let's start on Isaiah 21. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea, as whirlwinds in the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrible land. A stern vision is told to me. The traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Medea. All the sighing she has caused, I brought to an end. Therefore my loins are filled with anguish. Pangs have seized me like the pangs of a woman in labor. I am bowed down so that I cannot hear. I am dismayed so that I cannot see. My heart staggers, horror has appalled me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. The wilderness of the sea apparently refers to the desert south and west of Babylon, which is where this Merodach Baladon came from. So the idea that you have as whirlwinds in the Negev, in other words, we're not talking about actual whirlwinds in the Negev, it is simply a metaphor that as this Merodach Baladon comes north and takes Babylon, it is going to be like a whirlwind in the Negev, which everybody in Israel would be familiar with. This guy is not coming from the Negev. He's coming from the desert, which is south and west of Babylon. But he's using the metaphor of whirlwinds in the Negev because it's something everybody would have been familiar with. So a stern vision is told to me, the traitor betrays and the destroyer destroys. Go up, O Elam, lay siege, O Medea. So Elam and Medea are north and east of Babylon. They are allied with this Merodach Baladon in an alliance that is against Assyria. And as I say, it's going to take Assyria about 10 years to put this down. It's not an insignificant thing, but they do finally put it down. And Isaiah is distraught because the uh, Babylonian rebellion is not, in fact, going to be a happy thing for Israel. It's not going to draw the Assyrians off, and it is not going to relieve the pressure on Israel. That's why he's upset. Right, now then, five, they prepare the table, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Arise, O princes, oil the shield, for thus the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. A couple of meanings here. 
Isaiah has seen a vision of the disaster that is going to follow the destruction of Babylon by the Assyrians. Judah sees the prospect of an alliance with Babylon saving them. So Judah is celebrating when they find out about the rebellion of Merodach-Baladan and Babylon against Assyria. So they're rejoicing. Isaiah is distraught. And what he says is, uh, guys, you shouldn't be rejoicing. What you should be is oiling up your shields and getting ready because Assyria is going to be back. The idea is keep your equipment ready because the hoped-for result of the Babylonian rebellion is not going to happen. And you need to be ready for war. Verse 6, For thus the Lord said to me, Go, set a watchman, let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. So what we're looking for there is news of what's happened in the rebellion. You set watchmen out there, look, and as soon as you get somebody that comes with news of how the battle went, cry out. Verse 8. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day, at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, here come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So the news then that the watchmen have picked up from the messenger riders is not good. If you don't understand the history and the circumstances, none of this makes any sense. And as I say, he's the one that sees what's going to happen, and it saddens him greatly. Everybody else is feasting on the hopes that the Babylonian rebellion is going to succeed. So fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. So verse 10. O oh, my threshed and winnowed one, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I announce to you. So what he's saying is he is being kind of a Cassandra here. Everybody know who Cassandra was? Cassandra was a seer in Troy during the Trojan War. And she was always pronouncing doom. And so a Cassandra is one who always pronounces doom. And nobody ever believed her, just like with Isaiah here. Nobody wants to believe bad prophecies. My threshed and winnowed one. Um, again, those of you who have been through this a few times recognize that threshing and threshing floors are a metaphor for the judgment of God upon somebody. For example, the temple is built on the threshing floor of Aruna. The idea there is God is dealing with his people harshly and threshing them and winnowing out the chaff. So what it's saying here is you guys had hoped that the Babylonian rebellion was going to give you relief from the judgment of God. That is not going to happen. Verse 11, the oracle concerning Duma. Duma is a place in the Arabian desert. One is calling to me from Seir. Seir is another name for Edom. 
Edomites, the brother of Jacob, Esau. So that's where Esau and his family fetched up when Jacob and Esau split. So the Edomites are descendants of Esau. They are cousins, if you will, of Israel. And Seir is in Edom. So when you say Seir, you are talking about Edom. One is calling me from Seir. Watchman, what time of the night? Watchman, what time of the night? The watchman says, morning comes, and also the night. If you will inquire, inquire, come back again. The idea here is we're still talking in terms of the Assyrian invasion, and one of the things that does happen is Assyria does take out Seir. Verse 13, the oracle concerning Arabia. In the thickets in Arabia you will lodge, O caravans of the Dedanites. To the thirsty bring water. Meet the fugitive with bread, O inhabitants of the land of Tima. This is all land on the east side of the Jordan River. For they have fled from the swords, from the drawn sword, from the bent bow, from the press of battle. So the idea is the major war that's going on in the region is the Assyrians are rolling everybody up. And you have refugees running and people inquiring of watchmen to see if they have seen armies coming. It's all this turmoil caused by the Assyrians. Verse 16, for thus the Lord said to me, within a year, according to the years of a hired worker, all the glory of Kedar will come to an end. And the remainder of the archers of the mighty men of the sons of Kedar will be few. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has spoken. And again, Kedar is on the eastern side of the Jordan. So now we've dealt with the Babylonian rebellion. And we've dealt with the land on the east side of the Jordan. So now we're going to talk about Jerusalem. The oracle concerning the Valley of Vision. Valley of Vision would be the Kidron Valley, which is in Jerusalem. So the oracle concerning the Valley of Vision, what do you mean that you have gone up, all of you to the housetops, you who are full of shoutings, tumultuous city, exultant town, your slain are not slain with the sword or dead in battle. All your leaders have fled together. Without the bow they were captured. All of you who were found were captured, though they had fled far. Therefore I said, look away from me, let me weep bitter tears. Do not labor to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. A couple of opinions on what this is. This could be talking about the hopeful time during the Babylonian rebellion. It could also be one of the things that they will say later is eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. So this may be Well, we're about to get conquered, so we might just as well go happy. Verse 5. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of tumult and trampling and confusion in the valley of vision, battering down of walls and a shouting to the mountains. And Elam bore the quiver with chariots and horsemen, and Kir uncovered the shield. Your choicest valleys are full of chariots, and the horsemen took their stand at the gates. He has taken away the covering of Judah." The covering of Judah, in this case, would be the surrounding cities. So one of the things that happens is the Assyrians come down after having dealt with the Babylonian uprising and after having destroyed the northern kingdom, 
and they are going to take the surrounding cities. And what's going to happen with the surrounding cities, as we read in the previous paragraph, is that the rulers of those cities are all going to fall back into Jerusalem. As those cities north and west of Jerusalem are taken by the Assyrians, the people there are going to fall back into the fortified city of Jerusalem. Destruction of those cities is going to represent then the uncovering of Jerusalem because the fortifications and the cities around are gone now, so the only thing between Jerusalem and the Assyrian army is Jerusalem's own walls. So in verse 8 where it says, He has taken away the covering of Judah. In that day you looked to the weapons of the house of the forest, and you saw that the breaches of the city of David were many. You collected the waters of the lower pool, you counted the houses of Jerusalem, you broke down the houses to fortify the walls, you made a reservoir between the two walls for the water of the old pool, but you did not look to him who did it, or see him who planned it long ago. So what's going on here? Solomon built a house. It was called the house of the forest because it was made of cedars of Lebanon. And there they stored shields and weapons. This was during Solomon's time. So the idea of looking to the weapons of the house of the forest indicates that they have gone to this place where all of these weapons were stored during Solomon's time and they have retrieved those weapons with the idea of using them to defend Jerusalem. Furthermore, Hezekiah did in fact break up houses within Jerusalem to use the stones to build the wall. They say this all happened. And we don't know where the old pool is. One of the things that Hezekiah did, you'll remember, is he cut a tunnel from a spring into the city so that you had a constant supply of water. And the tunnel was cut some 1,700 feet through solid rock. And this was all part of the preparations for a siege of Jerusalem. So they were fortifying the walls by breaking up houses, and they were arranging to have pools of water available to them in the case of a siege. And in that process, you did not look to him who did it or see him who planned it long ago, which I am assuming means God. In that day, the Lord of hosts called for weeping and mourning, for baldness and wearing sackcloth, and behold, joy and gladness, killing oxen, slaughtering sheep, eating flesh and drinking wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. What God is saying is, I want you to weep. I want you to put on sackcloth. I want you to humble yourself before me. I want you to call on my name. What are you doing? Joy, gladness, slaughtering oxen and sheep. We're about to get destroyed, so we might just as well go out into exile with full bellies and a snootful. That was the attitude instead of humbling themselves. So, verse 14. The Lord of hosts has revealed himself in my ears. Surely this iniquity will not be atoned for until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. By the way, all of this is in 2 Kings 18 and 19. So, we're at verse 15 in Isaiah 22. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shibna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here, that you have cut out here a tomb for yourself? You who cut out a tomb, 
in the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock. Now Shebna is basically Hezekiah's chief of staff. And nobody's quite sure what he did, but this lead-in indicates that he has prepared a burial tomb for himself that is far above his station, which indicates that his problem is pride. So I'm in 2 Kings 18. Verse 13, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. Remember, we talked about that earlier, that the defenses of Jerusalem were gone because the fortified cities of Judah were taken by Sennacherib. So the only thing left between the Assyrian army and Jerusalem is Jerusalem's own walls because all the fortified cities have been taken out. All right, now skip down to verse 17. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the Rebsaris, and the Rebshekah with a great army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. The Tartan, the Rebsaris, and the Rebshekah are probably titles. They're not names. Like the commander, the chief of staff, and the first sergeant. In other words, they're titles, they're not names. And they went up and came to Jerusalem. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is on the highway to the washer's field. And when they called for the king, there came to them Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shibna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Isaph, the recorder. So here's Shibna that we are getting a prophecy about in Isaiah 22. So this is the historical record of Shibna. Isaiah 22 is the prophetic. So I'm in 2 Kings 18, 19. And the Rebshekah said to them, say to Hezekiah, Thus says the great king, the king of Assyria, On what do you rest this trust of yours? Do you think that mere words are strategy and power of war? In whom do you now trust that you have rebelled against me? Behold, you are trusting now in Egypt, that broken reed of a staff, that which will pierce the hand of any man who leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who trust him. And in fact, the Assyrians do conquer Egypt. So he's not bluffing here. So we have this long list of stuff, and then down to 26. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and Shibna, and Joab, said to Rebshekah, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, for we understand it. Do not speak to us in the language of Judah within the hearing of the people who are on the wall. This is bureaucrat speak. You've got commander of the Assyrian army whose native language is Aramaic. He's talking in sight of the walls of Jerusalem, and you've got people standing up on the walls watching this take place. The Reb Sheke is speaking in Hebrew. The bureaucrats say, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop talking Hebrew. Let's talk Aramaic, because we don't want everybody in the city to hear what you're saying. We'll tell them what you said. You understand the bureaucratic instinct here? We're going to do the diplomacy here. Let's talk in Aramaic. We'll figure out what we're going to do, and then we'll go in and we'll talk to the people of Jerusalem and tell them what you said, the idea being we will massage it to our benefit. Reb Sheka says no and continues to speak in Hebrew loudly so everybody on the walls can hear it. In other words, the Reb Sheka doesn't want the bureaucrats filtering what he says. So what's going to happen is 
first off, he says, you guys are depending on Egypt? Ha <laughs> ha, I'm going to take Egypt down, which he does. Nobody is going to be able to stand against me. Then he is going to go into a speech which is going to prove his undoing. And what he's going to say is, my God is stronger than your God, and you are foolish to depend upon your God because no other people's God has been able to stand against our gods. And he'll go through a list. The God of here, there, and everywhere, they trusted in their God and they're all conquered. They all belong to me. So the idea that you're going to be able to trust in your God when nobody else in the world has been able to trust in their God, get over the idea because your God is not going to be able to save you. Big mistake. Because that night, God destroys the Syrian army and he kills 185,000 of them. Obviously in that instant he breaks the siege of Jerusalem because the army is now dead. Sennacherib goes back to Nineveh after being defeated. Sennacherib is then assassinated by two of his sons for losing the army. So I'm not going to read all that. It's in uh, 2 Kings 19 if you want to read it. But it's a companion piece to this chunk of Isaiah that we are reading right now. So back in Isaiah 22, Shebna, who is the secretary to Hezekiah, I am interpreting secretary as the same thing as chief of staff. He's the guy that in order to talk to the king, you've got to go through him. And what we're seeing here in Isaiah 22 is he has gotten too big for his britches. And you can see the behavior of Shebna, Joah, and Hilkiah. You can see that they, they're, they're doing a couple of things. Obviously, they're being good staff bureaucrats. And the other thing is, is quite benign. They're trying to prevent panic in the city. So when I say the bureaucrats are trying to filter this, that is true, they are. But they aren't necessarily wrong in that process because what they don't want is to have everybody give up in the city and have the city fall. So anyway, back to Isaiah 22, verse 15 and 16 talk about Shebna getting too big for his britches and the manifestation of that is he has prepared for himself a grand tomb. The implication here is it is a tomb that is way more grandiose than his status would allow. Now, one of the things that happens, and you see this in 2 Kings, is Hezekiah loses heart. In other words, Hezekiah sort of mentally gives up, and it takes Isaiah to sort of buck him up and keep some lead in his spine to keep him going, because he's frightened. And it's entirely possible that Shebna, who's the chief of staff, sees the frightened nature of Hezekiah and looks upon him with contempt. That's entirely possible, and I'm reading between the lines, and it's not scripture. Uh, if it makes sense to you, use it. If it doesn't, that's fine. It's not thus saith anybody with me. So anyway, the point is in Isaiah, he has constructed himself a grand tomb. So now all the way down to verse 17. Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you, and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall be your glorious chariots, 
you shame of your master's house. Stern letter to follow. The idea here is he is a strong man. That's one of the things that leads me to believe that perhaps he holds the king in some contempt because the king, as I say, is sort of in a panic and has to be settled down by Isaiah. So there you will die, there shall be your glorious chariots, you shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office. You will be pulled down from your station. In that day I will call my servant Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, to the house of Judah. So I'm taking you out. Remember, Hilkiah was one of the three that goes out to meet the Reb Shekah. Hilkiah, Shebna, and Joah. So Hilkiah, who is, I'm assuming, is something like the Chamberlain, which is in charge of the king's personal household, as opposed to in charge of the royal staff. And he becomes the one who replaces Shebna, and he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, which is to say that he is going to be a strong figure in the kingdom. Verse 22, And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. A couple of years ago, in another context, I did a whole series on keys. There are keys several places in Scripture. What keys represent is access. So if you have keys, you have access to whatever is behind the lock. So the idea that he has the key to the house of David is he is the one who controls access to the king. And whatever he decides goes. Whatever you open, nobody will shut. Whatever you shut, nobody will open. You have authority. Your decision is final. And again, that's why I'm calling him the chief of staff, because that's what a chief of staff does. He controls access to the king, or to the president, or to the commander, or whoever the boss is. Verse 23, And I will fashion him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. Now again, fastening him like a peg in a secure place, a peg is something that you hang stuff on. And he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. They will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house the offspring, and issue every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. This is according to the commentary I read. I would not have caught this. But the idea is the small vessels, the cups, and the flagon are the nobility of Jerusalem. And they will hang on the peg that is Hilkiah. And he will support them all. So he's going to be the chief of staff. He's going to run the nobility. They're going to be able to depend upon him. And he is going to bring glory to his father's house. This is all in place of Shibna, who apparently sought glory for himself. So Shibna, in seeking glory for himself, loses everything. Hilkiah is going to get all glory for himself, but it's going to be given to him by the Lord as opposed to having him seek it. Verse 25, In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fast in a secure wall will give way, and it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. And this is obviously talking about the Babylonian captivity. So between now 
which is the destruction of the Assyrian army and the destruction of Judah some 120 years later, Hilkiah is going to be the mainstay of the kingdom. But when it's time for that kingdom to go down as decreed by God, then that peg will cut off and everything that was depending on it will fall. We'll do Tyre and Sidon next, obviously, since that's what's next. And just to prep that, Tyre and Sidon, of course, are two cities on the Mediterranean coast in Lebanon. A number of people have besieged Tyre, and it describes them as their shoulders have rubbed raw and their heads are bald, but they haven't received anything for their labor. Tyre at that time was an island. What Alexander did to take it is he built a causeway from the shore out to the island, and that's what he used to conquer it. But up until then, nobody has. We'll talk about Tyre and Sidon next time. Et ta